The Hobbit, Chapter 7, Queer Lodgings, Part 2. Well, of course, you haven't seen Owen and Glenn yet, and bless me, here they are. I hope you will forgive them for bothering you. Oh, let them all come. Hurry up. Hurry up. Come along, you two, and sit down. But look here, Gandalf. Even now we have only got yourself and ten dwarves and the Hobbit. That was lost. That only makes eleven, plus one mislaid, and not fourteen, unless wizards count differently to other people. But now please get on with the tale. Bayern did not show it more than he could help, but really he had begun to get very interested. You see, in the old days he had known the very part of the mountains that Gandalf was describing. He nodded and he growled when he heard of the hobbit's reappearance and of their scramble down the stone slide and of the wolf ring in the woods. When Gandalf came to their climbing into trees with the wolves all underneath, he got up and strode about and muttered, I wish I had been there. I would have given them more than fireworks. Well, said Gandalf, very glad to see that his tale was making good impression. I did the best I could. There we were with the wolves going mad underneath us and the forest beginning to blaze in places. When the goblins came down from the hills and discovered us, they yelled with delight and sang songs ma making fun of us. Fifteen birds and five fir trees. Good heavens, growled Bayorn. Don't pretend that goblins can't count. They can. Twelve isn't fifteen, and they know it. And so do it. There were Biffer and Bomber as well. I haven't ventured to introduce them before, but here they are. In came Biffer and Boffer. And me, gasped Bomber, puffing up behind. He was fat and also angry at being left till last. He refused to wait five minutes and followed immediately after the other two. Well, now there are 15 of you, and since goblins can count, I suppose that is all that were up there in the trees. Now perhaps we can finish this story without any more interruptions. Mr. Baggins saw then how clever Gandalf had been. The interruptions had really made Bayorn more interested in the story, and the story had kept him from sending the dwarves off at once like suspicious beggars. He never invited people into his house if he could help it. He had very few friends and they lived a good way away and he never invited more than a couple of these to his house at a time. Now he had got fifteen strangers sitting in his porch. By the time the wizard had finished his tale and had told of the eagle's rescue and of how they had all been brought to the Karak, the sun had fallen behind the peaks of the misty mountains, and the shadows were long in Bayon's garden. A very good tale, said he, the best I have heard for a long while. If all beggars could tell such a good one, they might find me kinder. You may be making it all up, of course, but you deserve a supper for the story all the same. Let's have something to eat. Yes, please, they all said together. Thank you very much. Inside the hall it was now quite dark. Bayorn clapped his hands and in trotted four beautiful white ponies and several large long-bodied gray dogs. Bayon said something to them in a queer language, like animal noises turned into talk. They went out again and soon came back, carrying torches in their mouths, which they lit at the fire and stuck in low branches on the pillars of the hall about the central hearth. The dogs could stand on their hind legs when they wished, 
and carry things with their forefeet. Quickly they got out boards and trestles from the side walls and set them up near the fire. Then ba 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 was heard, and in came some snow-white sheep, led by a large coal-black ram. One bore a white cloth embroidered at the edges with figures of animals. Others bore on their broad backs trays with bowls and platters and knives and wooden spoons, which the dogs took and quickly laid on the trestle tables. These were very low, low enough even for Bilbo to sit at comfortably. Beside them a pony pushed two seated benches with wide rush bottoms and little short thick legs for Gandalf and Thorum, while at the end he put Bayorn's big black chair of the same sort in which he sat with his great legs stuck far out under the table. These were all the chairs he had in his hall, and he probably had them low like the tables for the convenience of the wonderful animals that waited on him. What did the rest sit on? They were not forgotten. The other ponies came in rolling round drum-shaped sections of logs, smoothed and polished, and low enough even for Bilbo. So soon they were all seated at Bayorn's table, and the hall had not seen such a gathering for many a year. There they had a supper, or a dinner, such as they had not had since they left the last homely house in the west, and said goodbye to Elrond. The light of the torches and the fire flickered about them, and on the table were two tall red beeswax candles. All the time they ate, Bayorn in his deep rolling voice told tales of the wild lands on this side of the mountains, and especially of the dark and dangerous wood that lay outstretched far to the north and south, a day's ride before them, barring the way to the east, the terrible forest of Mirkwood. The dwarves listened and shook their beards, for they knew that they must soon venture into that forest, and that after the mountains it was the worst part of the perils they had to pass before they came to the dragon's stronghold. When dinner was over they began to tell tales of their own, but Bayon seemed to be growing drowsy and paid little heed to them. They spoke most of gold and silver and jewels and the making of things by smithcraft and Bayorn did not appear to care for such things. There were no things of gold or silver in his hall, and very few save the knives were made of metal at all. They sat long at the table with their wooden drinking bowls filled with mead. The dark night came on outside. The fires in the middle of the hall were built with fresh logs, and the torches were put out, and still they sat in the light of the dancing flames with the pillars of the house standing tall behind them, and dark at the top like trees of the forest. Whether it was magic or not, it seemed to Bilbo that he heard a sound like wind in the branches, stirring in the rafters, and the hoot of owls. Soon he began to nod with sleep, and the voices seemed to grow far away until he woke with a start. The great door had creak, creaked and slammed. Bayorn was gone. The dwarves were sitting cross-legged on the floor around the fire, and presently they began to sing. Some of the verses were like this, but there were many more, and their singing went on for a long while. The wind was on the withered heath, but in the forest stirred no leaf. Their shadows lay by night and day, and dark things silent crept beneath. 
The wind came down from mountains cold, and like a tide it roared and rolled. The branches groaned, the forest moaned, and leaves were laid upon the mold. The wind went on from west to east. All movement in the forest ceased, but shrill and harsh across the marsh, its whistling voices were released. The grasses hissed, their tassels bent, the reeds were rattling, on it went, or shaken pool under heaven's cool, where racing clouds were torn and rent. It passed the lonely mountain bare and swept above the dragon's lair. There black and dark lay boulders stark, and flying smoke was in the air. It left the world and took its flight over the wide seas of the night. The moon set sail upon the gale, and stars were fanned to leaping light. Bilbo began to nod again. Suddenly up stood Gandalf. It is time for us to sleep, he said, for us, but not, I think, for Bayon. In this hall we can rest sound and safe, but I warn you all not to forget what Bayon said before he left us. You must not stray outside until the sun is up. On your peril. Bilbo found that beds had already been laid at the side of the hall, on a sort of raised platform between the pillars and the outer wall. For him there was a little mattress of straw and woolen blankets. He snuggled into them very gladly, summertime though it was. The fire burned low and he fell asleep. Yet in the night he woke. The fire had now sunk to a few embers. The dwarves and Gandalf were all asleep, to judge by their breathing. A splash of white on the floor came from the high moon, which was peering down through the smoke hole in the roof. There was a growling sound outside, and a noise as of some great animal scuffling at the door. Bilbo wondered what it was, and whether it could be Bayorn in enchanted shape, and if he would come in as a bear and kill them. He dived under the blankets and hid his head, and fell asleep again, at last in spite of his fears. It was full morning when he awoke. One of the dwarves had fallen over him in the shadows where he lay, and had rolled down with a bump from the platform onto the floor. It was Boffer, and he was grumbling about it when Bilbo opened his eyes. Get up, lazy bones, he said, or there will be no breakfast left for you. Up jumped Bilbo. Breakfast, he cried. Where is breakfast? Mostly inside us, answered the other dwarves who were moving about the hall. But what is left is out on the veranda. We have, been, we have been about looking for Bayorn ever since the sun got up, but there is no sign of him anywhere, though we found breakfast laid as soon as we went out. Where is Gandalf? asked Bilbo, moving off to find something to eat as quick as he could. Oh, out and about somewhere, they told him. But he saw no sign of the wizard all that day until the evening. Just before sunset, he walked into the hall where the hobbit and the dwarves were having supper, waited on by Bayorn's wonderful animals, and they had been all, as they had been all day. Of Bayorn, they had seen and heard nothing since the night before, and they were getting puzzled. Where's our host, and where have you been all day yourself, they all cried. One question at a time, and none till after supper. I haven't had a bite since breakfast. At last, Gandalf pushed away his plate and jug, 
He had eaten two whole loaves with masses of butter and honey and clotted cream, and drunk at least a quart of mead, and he took out his pipe. I will answer the, I will answer the second question first, he said. But bless me, this is a splendid place for smoke rings. Indeed, for a long time, they could get nothing more out of him. He was so busy sending smoke rings, dodging round the pillars of the hall, changing them into all sorts of different shapes and colors, and setting them at last, chasing one another out of the hole in the roof. They must have looked very queer from outside, popping out into the air, one after another, green, blue, red, silver, gray, yellow, white, big ones, little ones, little ones dodging through big ones and joining into figure eights, and going off like a flock of birds into the distance. I have been picking out bear tracks, he said at last. There must have been a regular bears meeting outside here last night. I soon saw that Bayon could not have made them all. There were far too many of them, and they were of various sizes, too. I should say there were little bears, large bears, ordinary bears, and gigantic big bears, all dancing outside from dark to nearly dawn. They came from almost every direction, except from the west over the river from the mountains. In that direction, only one set of footprints led, none coming, only ones going away from here. I followed these as far as the Karak. There they disappeared into the river, but the water was too deep and strong beyond the rock for me to cross. It is easy enough, as you remember, to get from this bank to the Karak by the ford, but on the other side is a cliff standing up from a swirling channel. I had to walk miles before I found a place where the river was wide and shallow enough for me to wade and swim, and then miles back again to pick up the tracks again. By that time, it was too late for me to follow them far. They went straight off into the direction of the pine woods on the east side of, mist, of the Misty Mountains, where we had our pleasant little party with the wards the night before last. And now I think I have answered your first question, too, ended Gandalf. And he sat a long while silent. Bilbo thought he knew what the wizard meant. What shall we do, he cried, if he leads all the wargs and the goblins down here? We shall all be caught and killed. I thought you said he was not a friend of theirs. So I did. And don't be silly. You had better go to bed. Your wits are sleepy. The hobbit felt quite crushed, and as there seemed nothing else to do, he did go to bed. And while the dwarves were still singing songs, he dropped asleep, still puzzling his little head about Bayorn, till he dreamed the dream of hundreds of black bears dancing slow, heavy dances round and round in the moonlight in the courtyard. Then he woke up when everyone else was asleep, and he heard the same scraping, scuffling, snuffling and growling as before. Next morning, they were all wakened by Bayorn himself. So here you all are still, he said. He picked up the hobbit and laughed. Not eaten up by wargs or goblins or wicked bears yet, I see. And he poked Mr. Baggins' waistcoat most disrespectfully. Little Bunny is getting nice and fat again on bread and honey, he chuckled. Come and have some more. So they all went to breakfast with him, 
Bairn was most jolly for a change. Indeed, he seemed to be in a splendidly good humor and set them all laughing with his funny stories. Nor did they have to wonder long where he had been or why he was so nice to them, for he told them himself. He had been over the river and right back up into the mountains, from which you can guess that he could travel quickly in bear shape at any rate. From the burnt wolf glade, he had soon found out that part of their story was true. But he had found more than that. He had caught a warg and a goblin wandering in the woods. From these, he had got news. The goblin patrols were still hunting with wargs for the dwarves, and they were fiercely angry because of the death of the great goblin, and also because of the burning of the chief wolf's nose and the death from the wizard's fire of many of his chief servants. So much they told him when he forced them, but he guessed there was more wickedness than this afoot, and that a great raid of the whole goblin army, with their wolf allies into the land shadowed by the mountains, might soon be made to find the dwarves, or to take vengeance on the men and creatures that lived there, and who they thought must be sheltering them. It was a good story, that of yours, said Bayorn. But I like it still better now. I am sure it is true. You must forgive my not taking your word. If you lived near the edge of Mirkwood, you would take the word of no one that you did not know as well as your brother or better. As it is, I can only say that I have hurried home as fast as I could to see that you were safe and to offer you any help that I can. I shall think more kindly of dwarves after this. Kill the great goblin. Kill the great goblin, he chuckled fiercely to himself. What did you do with the goblin and the warg? asked Bilbo suddenly. Come and see, said Bayorn, and they followed round the house. A goblin's head was stuck outside the gate, and a warg skin was nailed to a tree just beyond. Bayorn was a fierce enemy, but now he was their friend, and Gandalf thought it wise to tell him their whole story and the reason of their journey so that they could get the most help he could offer. This is what he promised to do for them. He would provide ponies for each of them and a horse for Gandalf for their journey to the forest, and he would lade them with food to last them for weeks with care and pack so as to be easy as possible to carry. Nuts, flour, sealed jars of dried fruits, and red earthenware earthenware pots of honey, and twice-baked cakes that would keep good a long time, and not a little of which they could march far. The making of these was one of his secrets. But honey was in them, as in most of his foods, and they were good to eat, though they made one thirsty. Water, he said, they would not need to carry this side of the forest, for there were streams and springs along the road. But your way through Mirkwood is dark, dangerous, and difficult, he said. Water is not easy to find there, nor food. The time has not yet come for nuts, though it may be past and gone indeed before you get to the other side. And nuts are about all that grows there fit for food. In there the wild things are dark, queer, and savage. I will provide you with skins for carrying water, and I will give you some bows and arrows but I doubt very much whether anything you find in Mirkwood will be wholesome to eat or to drink. There is one stream there, I know, black and strong, which crosses the path. 
that you should neither drink of nor bathe in, for I have heard that it carries enchantment and a great drowsiness and forgetfulness. And in the dim shadows of that place, I don't think you will shoot anything wholesome or unwholesome without straying from the path. That you must not do for any reason. That is all the advice I can give you. Beyond the edge of the forest, I cannot help you much. You must depend on your luck and your courage and the food I send with you. At the gate of the forest, I must ask you to send back my horse and my ponies. But I wish you all speed, and my house is open to you if ever you come back this way again. End of part two.